Thank you very much, worship team. It's such a blessing to be here this morning with you. My name is Zach Nelson, and I have the uh, opportunity of kind of open up the Word today. And it's my prayer that as we open up the Word, really, that God would speak to us. Every time the Word of God is opened, we have the opportunity by His amazing Spirit to have our lives completely transformed. And that's the goal. When we come together on Sunday mornings to worship as a body, there's something special that ought to happen. It ought to be a time where we gather and we recognize how amazing our glorious Redeemer is. It ought to be a time where we fellowship amongst the believers. And ultimately, it ought to be a time where we reflect upon the grace of God. And that's really the opportunity that I've had kind of this week in preparing to preach. I don't really preach often. Um, it's not something that I do every single Sunday. And so to be able to get a message from your pastor to say he's out of town this week and he needs somebody to kind of fill the pulpit. It's just an, it's an honor for me to be here. It's an opportunity for, for, for us to kind of reflect upon God's word together and pray that God would do a, a real work in each of our lives. Um, another reason why it's special for me is that 20 years ago, uh, around this time, um, I was sitting in a church a lot like this, and I had a college student come up to me. My parents were believers, and um, they, they raised me in really a great Southern Baptist church, and I had the opportunity to hear the gospel at a very early age. Uh, but by the age of 16, um, I really hadn't started walking faithfully with Jesus Christ. I would have told you I was a Christian. I would have told you that, that Jesus is the Lord of my life. I could probably have even, in some form or fashion, explained the gospel to you. But the grace of God was not evident within me. There hadn't be a, been a true transformation that had taken place. And so at the age of 16, a college student walked up to me and said, Hey man, I want to get to know you. Now as a 16-year-old, it's a little awkward to be a, approached by a college student who in many ways you just think they're kind of cool and, and older than you and you kind of want to be like them in a couple years. And, and this dude, you know, he kind of had a cool factor to him, but, but he was wearing glasses I could tell he was probably very smart by our conversation, and it was just extremely intimidating. But I said, yes, I'm going to hang out with you. And so this guy asked and said, well, what do you like to do? I said, I love to play sports. Sports were really the god of my life at that point in time. I was a pretty good athlete. The next god would have been girls. Okay, Not that I really had the opportunity to have too many girlfriends, but the thought of girls ran through my mind a whole lot. These were the two things that were most important to me when I was in high school. And this college student said, hey, let's just, you know, he, he didn't even play sports. He was like, I'm not really good at sports. I was like, well, I don't know if we have anything in common then. So he said, let's do coffee. I said, I don't drink coffee. Okay, so where do we go from here? And so we ended up, him coming to, to watch a game of mine, a basketball game that, you know, was, was taking place at our church in church league, and we hung out afterwards. And that guy was Jared Scott. That guy befriended a 16-year-old that day, and through his life, as I watched him, I saw the evidence of God's grace. I didn't know much about his story at that time. I didn't know he was the son of a pastor. That was, he didn't introduce himself that type of way. Um, he was a college student who loved Jesus. And based upon his love and how he lived out his life before me, it helped me understand who Jesus really was. And it helped me understand the grace of God that in many ways I had forgotten. 
And so 20 years later, coming and having the opportunity to preach at the church where he's the lead pastor is a great honor. It's a great honor for me to to be here and to, to let you know that your pastor had the type of influence in my life that potentially kept me from entering darkness, but transferred me into the domain of light. Isn't that awesome? And the thing is about this, I don't even know if Jared realizes that. I don't even think he would probably remember the time that he befriended a 16-year-old. He may. We connected years later after I went to the University of North Carolina of Wilmington. I graduated from there in four years. I got married Um, And then I ended up here at Southeastern Seminary shortly after I was married to where I got my Master's of Divinity there and um, ended up running into him at the Lifeway bookstore on campus where we reconnected. Uh, We've not spent a ton of time together since, um, but every now and then one of us will pick up the phone, we'll call each other, we'll hit up each other on Facebook. Um, This is just one of those relationships that I'll never forget. And that will always have a special place in my life. And um, as I was thinking about that this week, uh, I was also starting to be convicted of areas in my life where I feel like that I've forgotten the grace of God. And I started reading in 2 Corinthians, the very end of the book, in chapter 13, and I came across verse 5, and it says this, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith, and then test yourself. Or, you do, or do you not realize this about you, that Jesus Christ is in you? And I kind of thought about that for a little bit. I thought about what it means to examine myself and to, to test myself to see if I'm living a life according to the faith in response to what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf and that He's given me the gift of life so, they may, so that I might live it more abundantly. And then in many ways, I was looking at my life and I was thinking, man, as I'm examining it, I'm not seeing the fruit that I want to see. I'm, I'm not feeling the evidence that I want to feel, the evidence of fruitfulness, the evidence of maturity. And I had to remind myself that Jesus Christ is in me. It's a pretty simple thing for a Christian, right? We say this, we sing the words of the cross We talk to each other throughout the week. We probably get together in our small groups and other discipleship classes. We hear these words ringing true at all times. But are they sinking in? Do we realize that we have not been disqualified from this faith based upon the work of Jesus Christ? And the reality is, oftentimes I live my life throughout the day forgetting this truth. Hence why we have Sundays when we gather together reminding each other of the grace of God. And so if you would take the time right now to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. As you're turning your Bible to 2 Corinthians, I kind of want to bring us up to speed to where we are within the context of 2 Corinthians and talk a little bit about the church of Corinth. Then I'm going to read through this passage, and after I read through this passage, we're going to really look at three things that this passage is going to bring to light about the grace of God. And what I hope we leave with today is examining ourselves to see whether or not we really are in the faith. And I hope what we will come to realize is that we have not been disqualified from this faith because Jesus Christ is in us. 
I want us to understand the grace of God more today than when we came in. Because, unfortunately, it's this grace of God that we forget. And it was the grace of God that the church in Corinth had forgotten. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes a letter to the church of Corinth, and it is uh, maybe the harshest letter written to a church. It's a church that is disunified. It is a church that uh, has sexual perversion at the core. It is a church that is fighting with one another. It is a church that is, is raising up the teaching of false gospels above the teaching of Jesus Christ. Hence, 1 Corinthians is written. It's a rebuke. A rebuke to follow after Jesus. To understand the gospel rightly. After that, there were multiple trips that were made by Titus and by Timothy to go back and make sure that this church was responding faithfully. And at times they were, and at times they were not. This church had forgotten the grace of God. But as he was pinning the letter of 2 Corinthians, something interesting was taking place to the church in Corinth. Their heart had become softened. The harsh words that were written in a letter to this church were finally starting to penetrate the core by the work of the Spirit of God so that these Corinthians were desiring to be obedient. The grace of God was, was softening a hardened heart to the point that as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, this is Paul's description. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a softening of the heart, an earnestness to obey the Lord based upon what God is doing right now in the church of Corinth. And this is where this letter is being focused towards. The church in Corinth had made a commitment, a commitment to give financially, a gift to the church in Jerusalem, because there was a great need there. And when they started this commitment to them, it had been years now, it had not been followed up on. Paul had written his first letter, he had talked to him about disunity, and now he's talking to them about what it means to fulfill a commitment that they first made. The reflection of that within the context of their testimony as they proclaim that Jesus is Lord, there ought to be fruit that flows from that. And this is where we come in chapter 8. We see in chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, that Paul really wants these people to understand the grace of God. Not because they had never heard about who Jesus was, but because they had forgotten. It had become numb to their minds. It was something that they would sing and they would read about and talk to their friends about, but it wasn't penetrating their heart to where it was producing fruit in their life. And that's where we are when we start in verse 1. And so I'm going to take the time to read through this passage and then we're going to walk through it. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. 
and that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they have gave according to their means, and as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus, that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in all love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at this present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. In verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. So as we look back at verse 1, we're going to look at the first six verses. And there's really one main point that's going to be coming across in these first six verses that I want us to gather. And and that is this. Knowing the grace of God brings paradoxical change. Knowing the grace of God brings paradoxical change. You may say to yourself, what, what are you talking about paradoxical? It's a large word. It's not something that we use often. This is what I mean. It's seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. I think that's what we start to see when the grace of God is at work in somebody's life. We see a transformation that takes place. That doesn't really make sense. Because we knew the person before, and now that the grace of God has impacted them, they're acting and living in a completely different way. How can that be? What's taking place? And this is the story that Paul is trying to share first in an illustration about the Macedonians. He starts off in verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. You see, as, as preachers, we're really not that bright. It's pretty, it's pretty easy to find out in this passage right here what we're talking about. It's about the grace of God. Okay? The church at Corinth was missing out on the grace of God, so Paul's trying to address them with an illustration about the Macedonians, saying this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Okay, so what about this grace of God? The grace of God that's been given among the churches at Macedonia. So what churches are these? Okay. Corinth is located 
south. Up north is Macedonia. It's kind of a big area. And so you've got the churches of Philippi. You remember them? The Philippians? Okay. Book written to them. We've got a letter from Paul. That, that letter is one of the most encouraging letters we've got. Uh, let's, let's think of another one. The Bereans. Are they mentioned throughout Scripture? You've got a church that in Berean, uh, in Berea kind of comes forth. And these Bereans are known as people who love the Word of God. That's what they're known by. And then we've got Thessalonica. Man, y'all are preaching through Acts right now. Is that correct? So you know a little bit about the Thessalonians. We've just come from chapter 17, and you've got the one American named dude named Jason. Do you remember this guy? In chapter 17, who makes the profession, and he's living, he's with Paul, and Paul's, you know, there's a lot of suffering, a lot of persecution that's taking place in this area. And this guy named Jason is pulled in after getting beat up. And they point at him and he says, man, it's, it's this guy and Paul and everyone else. They're turning the world upside down because they're living in such a way that's paradoxical. They've responded to the grace of God. They can't keep their mouths quiet and they continue to share what Jesus Christ is doing. King Jesus. They were submitting their lives to him, the Redeemer. So you've got these churches, and they're being persecuted, and they're, they're broke, and they don't have any money. And, and in Corinth, you've got a church that is prosperous, that has money, that there is very little persecution. And Paul's trying to, to shake them to understand the grace of God, and he's using them as an illustration. And he says this in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Abundant joy and generous giving existing amongst severe affliction and extreme poverty. It doesn't make sense. It's paradoxical. How can these two exist at the exact same time? Now, as I'm trying to examine myself throughout the week and test myself to I'm living according to the faith, am I really doing this? I started to examine things in my life that ought not to be there if I'm applying the paradoxical grace of God to my life. Sometimes I get overwhelmed with work. A lot of what I do is raise money. That's my job. I raise funds so that churches can be planted all throughout North America. I raise funds so that churches that are dying can be revitalized. And we help train and equip churches to raise up disciples from within and for these churches then to send them out all throughout North America to both plant and revitalize churches. And I work on the fundraising side, overseeing a nonprofit that's trying to accomplish this goal. It's sometimes overwhelming when I look at money and the money in my budget doesn't reflect what I want to do. Has anyone ever had this kind of, whether it's in your, at work or, you know, maybe at home, and you're sitting there and you're like, how do I make sense of this? I'm making, I make X, and I need like $400,000 more than X in order to accomplish what I want to see happen. I mean, we got kids playing soccer. I got, a, got three kids. I can barely feed them all. I mean, they just eat. I mean, what's wrong with these kids? And I'm trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Everybody's 
probably feeling pressed in at times because of their work, because of family, because of job, because of, of areas where we're just not healthy, our bodies don't feel right, we're sick. The effects of sin in this world, whether it's the sin of 9-11 or it's the result of sin, Adam's first sin, that's affected every single one of us. Whether it's sin that we afflict upon others or sin that we inflict upon ourselves because we choose not to follow after Christ, but we, sh- we choose to pursue our own desires. Whatever it may be, it keeps me from experiencing this abundant joy and this generous life of giving that the Macedonians are now responding with. I don't feel like doing this. This goes against ultimately what I want to do, which is hold on to what I have because I want to use it for my purposes and my benefit. And yet at the exact same time, I look at my life and I try to measure, do I really have abundant joy? And if I'm honest, I don't. I don't have abundant joy. And then I wrestle and I ask the questions of why. And the answer overall is pretty simple. I've forgotten the grace of God. And we start to see that worked out in the life of the Macedonians in verse 3. It says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord. They gave above and beyond. It doesn't even make sense that they should give at all. These are people that we should have been giving to, but yet they continued in their generosity. It was blowing Paul away that they would act like this. In verse 4, it says, They even begged earnestly for the favor of taking part or fellowshipping in the relief of the saints. I mean, do we even see this happening in today's life to where you see churches or individuals just begging, Paul, please give me the opportunity. Let me give everything that I have. Let me give it all. I don't want it. I want it to be used for the kingdom's purposes. I think about how am I going to give in order to make a car payment? How am I going to give in order to sign one of my kids up for a soccer tournament? How am I going to give uh, in order to paint my house a certain color? How am I going to give so that my curb appeal can keep up with my neighbor's curb appeal? There's something paradoxical that's taking place in the life of the Macedonians that only results by the reality of Jesus Christ living inside of them and them responding by this grace, this unmerited favor of God, this gift that they've been given that in no way did they deserve, but they grasp a hold of this gift and now they're opening it up and they're applying it to their lives and they find themselves living generously. They find themselves living a transformed life to where they're begging Paul for the opportunity to have fellowship with other believers by providing means for them, for them to survive, to meet their needs, for them to do gospel ministry, all in the midst of them being persecuted and them having very little. It's paradoxical. It doesn't make sense. It's not as we expected, as he said in verse 5. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves, and this is how it happens, they gave themselves first to the Lord 
and then by the will of God to us. Okay. So if I'm going to be the type of believer that knows the grace of God, that experiences this abundant joy, that lives a transformed life, then what it's telling me here is that I must fully give myself to the Lord. But what does that look like? Well, it looks like every aspect of our lives, the things that that we don't want to give up to God, the example here is money, but there's plenty of others. It could be our job, it could be our family, it could be our friends, it could be our hobbies. Whatever that may be, it's the Lord's. Everything that we have that's been given to us, we're to be stewards of. It's all God's. Everything the Lord owns, He owns us, He owns our minds, He owns our thoughts. He's redeemed us. That's what happened. We don't own ourselves anymore because as believers, we've been what? We've been bought with the what? With the price. And what is that price that we've been bought with? The blood of Jesus, this cross that we've sang about. This is the grace of God that's being spoken about here that too often we sing about, but for whatever reason, doesn't take root in our hearts and produce the type of gracious living that we see from the Macedonians right here. Is our church more like the church of Corinth today, or is it more like the churches in Macedonia? That's just a question that I think needs to be asked. We can apply it individually to our lives to where are we as members of these churches more like the members at Corinth or more like the members in Macedonia? I think in in Mark chapter 12, verse 44, we see this illustrated in the life of the widow who decided to come and just give a couple mites, a couple copper coins. Let me read this. It's one verse. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. How do we get to this point in our life to where we respond this type of way? Many of y'all may know the story of Rick Warren. Um, Rick Warren is the pastor at a very large church, Saddleback, and, um, you know, through his gospel ministry and through his writings, many of them you're probably familiar with, the most popular being The Purpose Driven Life that was written years ago. Um, He was able to make a whole lot of money. Uh, we don't, you know, I don't know exactly the amount, but from the testimony that has come from others sharing what he's done, it's, it's reminded me of this grace of God. You may know the story. Rick Warren, um, right now at his church, does not take a salary. Doesn't take a salary. And in fact, he received a salary for a while, but once money started rolling in from the book sales, he paid back the church every dollar that was ever given to him that he made. It wasn't like he just said, you know what, I'm going to start from here on not receiving a salary. But he said, okay, church, what is it, the amount that has been paid for me to kind of shepherd this body and to do gospel ministry? And they gave him the number, and over time he paid it all back. And now he lives in such a way to where 
just from the money that comes in off of his book sales and from his other ministries, it's come to the point where he lives off of 10% and gives away 90%. Now, some of us are like, well, I'm not Rick Warren. How can I do that? But there's a principle here because what we're looking at is a church, I think, that had absolutely nothing and they gave far beyond what was ever expected, even by Paul. Why? Because of the grace of God at work in them. And then we have a man here who God seemed to bless with tons of money, but rather than using it for his own purposes, wanted to see it blessed for the kingdom of God to be used for the fellowship of the saints. And so you have people on both sides. God's not concerned about the amount. He's concerned about the heart. C.S. Lewis um, made a, a statement years ago, and he said this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. So the question I ask is, do we really understand God's grace? Let's continue to look on here in verse 7. We're going to see in verses 7, 8, and 9 another point that's going to come up. And that's that knowing the grace of God should move us to address blind spots of unfaithfulness in our lives. Let's look at verse 7. It says this, But as you excel in everything. So there's obviously some things going on in the life of Corinth here that, that are good, right? There's some things that they're excelling in. This is good. This is good. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So they're excelling in a large aspect of what does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to follow after Christ? They're applying the grace of God to, to, to they're addressing things of unity in their church. They're addressing aspects of sexual perversion in their church. They're they're, um, they're probably ministering faithfully now within the context of their community. Their testimony is starting to change. All these things written in this first letter, they're addressing. God's at work in their life. They're growing. They're moving from immaturity into maturity. They've stopped just drinking milk, and now they're starting to eat the meat of the gospel. But there's this one thing that seems to be a blind spot. Do you all know what a blind spot is? Kind of the thought in my mind that takes place when I think about blind spots, and maybe it's because um, I got in a lot of wrecks when I was growing up, uh, mainly when I first got my driver's license. I thought I was a good driver, but I really probably wasn't. Hence, you know, most people that are 16 to 18, they think they're good at stuff, but they're really not. Um, but I remember driving, and, and, and a part of my test was trying to understand, okay, You've got to be aware of these blind spots. You can look in the mirror and you can kind of see and you can see part of it, but there's going to be a spot that kind of exists kind of on that, that back left side and even on the back right side that if you don't turn around and look, then you're not going to see the car there. Y'all ever notice that? Okay, some of y'all are like, yeah, I've hit a car too in my day because I did not check out the blind spot. Well, I too have hit a car too. Because I did not check out my blind spots. I did not take the time to look, in my, to, to look over my shoulder to check what was taking place in these areas. And in our lives, we've got blind spots. 
We've got areas that we don't attend to on an ongoing basis. Whether we don't want to, because we kind of want to hold on to those areas of life, we've not fully submitted them to the Lord, or potentially maybe just because of our busyness, there's just areas that we neglect, or maybe we know ourselves in such a way to where we don't allow people in to our lives to kind of identify these potential blind spots. Because blind spots in many ways are, you know, these are, these are things that exist that are here in our lives that we like to kind of keep covered up. We don't want people knowing about them. Areas of secret sin, potentially. But there are areas, ultimately, where we are not allowing the grace of God to have an effect. Areas where we believe we can do life better or life would be more enjoyable if we truly hold on to them with a tight grip. Well, Paul is recognizing that in the life of the Corinthians. You've addressed all these areas, but you need to deal with the blind spot of how this giving and your financial gifts that you're holding on to that the Lord has blessed you with, you need to deal with this because it's going to affect other aspects of your life. In verse 8, he says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Because the reality is, these blind spots, these areas that we don't address, they affect our character. They ultimately portray who we are as children of God. And potentially who we are if we're not children of God. This is the test. Is your love genuine or are you fake? Are you a real child of God or are you a fake believer? This is a statement that ought to cut us to the core. It ought to make us think what our testimony is amongst our family, amongst our friends, at work. Do we live two different lives? Do we have our church life and then do we have our our life that we just try to, to live and keep hidden as a blind spot in a sense? What is that in your life? In verse 9, we see the second illustration, which is a greater illustration than the first. We see the illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ himself, the true picture of grace. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling them back to it. For you know, you've heard it before. Remember, I'm calling you back to this, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. This is the most famous verse. Many of us have it memorized. What is this richness that Christ had? Well, his richness came from sitting at the right hand of the Father. With angels all around him rejoicing his name, singing praises to him. All the celestial beings the Father at His side, the richness of all riches in heaven, the dwelling place of God the Father, of Jesus Christ. And He left it. He left it to become poor. What is this poor thing that we think of? He left it to to come down to earth and to live a life on earth where ultimately He would be persecuted where ultimately even those that claim to be his closest followers would turn his back, their back on him. And yet he remained faithful. 
faithful, responding to his Father. Being obedient at all times to the end. Being obedient in ways that no one else could be obedient. And then ultimately receiving the curse. The curse of our own sin being put on his back. This is the story of the gospel. And all this had to happen so that we might become rich. We would never taste the richness of this grace if it wouldn't have been for the work of Jesus Christ. We wouldn't taste it. We wouldn't know it. But yet, oftentimes, we live as though it doesn't exist. This is what we're being called back to. We've got to address the blind spots with the gospel. Do we really understand God's grace? That's the question that we must continue answering and asking ourselves. Let's look at these last verses. Verses 10 through 15. The third point is this, that knowing the grace of God should result in a life that finishes the work that God began in us. Now, I grew up in a home where my dad was an extremely hard worker. Um, He worked for Bell South, climbing poles the majority of his life. And the one thing that my dad instilled in me is that if you start something, you need to finish it. I remember many times when I was playing sports that there was a sense of it got very hard and I just wanted to quit. And even at times when I was doing schoolwork and, um, and, and did not feel like finishing the paper or, or, or did not feel like, I did not feel like doing the test and preparing for the test, that ultimately in the back of my mind I knew that I must finish this work. And there's something that's being instilled here by Paul in helping the church at Corinth understand their role and what does it mean to be a follower of Christ and applying the grace of God. And we see this in verse 10. It says, And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago you started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Verse 11, So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. And what you see here in these two verses is you see uh, a group of people that are starting, starting to desire again what they began. Paul is calling them to complete it, but not completing it just because Paul is commanding them to do so. He does not want that to take place. It's not Paul's desire to guilt them into giving money. It's not Paul's desire to to place the Macedonians as a model in such a way to where I want you to be like the Macedonians. Just follow them. Give like they're giving. He's trying to deal with the heart of the Corinthians. He's not concerned about the amount. He's not told them to give give an exact amount. But he's told them to fulfill an agreement of a desire that began that needs to continue. And I look throughout Scripture and you see this kind of as a rule coming at all points in times. In Philippians 1.6 you see this. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the work of our Redeemer, our redemption. What God began in us, He's going to complete it. So we've got the model ultimately of our Savior Jesus. He started a work in us. He's going to finish it. Praise the Lord. That despite 
when we forget the grace of God, that this is a part of his plan in saying, I'm going to complete it in you. I'm doing a work in you. These hard times, this suffering, this persecution, your health, your job, your family, your friends, everything that seems burdensome at times. This is for the purpose of completing a work in you. The work of God's grace. I'm doing a work and I have not forgotten. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus and says this about his own life. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This rings through throughout Scripture time and time again. We're understanding what does it mean to complete the task that God has sent us towards because God is completing it in us because the work of his own grace. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness. Your abundance at this present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need and there may be fairness. What Paul isn't talking about here is some sort of communism type of plan to where everybody gives so that they all look and have the exact same thing. Obviously, that's not it because we have Corinth in an area where they are blessed financially and we have the churches in Jerusalem where there's an offering being taken up for them and they are struggling to make ends meet and we have churches in Macedonia that are struggling as well. So it's not Paul's desire that everyone just look and act and feel the exact same way. But what Paul is trying to get at that in response of God's grace, there ought to be something that's taking place in our heart to partner together in the work of increasing and meeting the needs of the saints in the kingdom of God. That's the picture that's given to us in the text. The picture of churches cooperating, of partnering together, all driven by the work of Jesus Christ, of responding in such a way because of God became rich in His richness. He was rich, He had everything, but He gave it up so that he could become poor. And in his poorness, he took on the curse. And he he received the cross, taking our weight and the sin and the burden of everything upon his own back. And then in proving that he was God, he rose again from the dead, showing that we too can be more than conquerors because he has conquered our sin. He is the resurrected Lord who now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf when we call upon Him. It's the story of the gospel, it's the truth, it's the grace of God that ought to impact every aspect of our life, our blind spots, the areas that we don't want to give over to Him. And it's this area that ought to force us to cooperate well with other churches. There are many needs with other churches. That's my job, to know the needs. Right now, we've got over 4,000 churches closing their doors every single day. We've got over 2.8 million members also in our churches becoming inactive. 
that are moving away from the grace of God. That at one point in time were serving, they were they were seemed to be producing fruit and growing within their body, but yet now they're not even attending. Have we forgotten the grace of God? In verse 15, we see this last illustration. He takes us back to Exodus chapter 16, verse 18. And he's recounting when God's children were wandering in the wilderness. And God in his gracious and provision provided enough manna for each day. And Paul interprets this to apply to the quality of sharing trying to amass more than one's fair share, hoarding it or clutching it desperately is a futile waste of energy. Because in so doing, it ends up being a pile of rocks. Paul interprets the account from Exodus as teaching that one can share with others and still have enough. Paul's desire is to reason from Scripture in order that the Corinthian church will understand God's desire to meet the needs of the Jerusalem church through their giving. This ought to be our heart. This ought to be the heart of our members as we seek to meet the needs of those within the context of our own body, as well as seek to meet the needs of those in other churches. Are we partnering well with church plants throughout North America? Are we partnering well with churches that in many ways will close their door because this Sunday is their last Sunday because they cannot keep the doors open any longer? How are we going to address these problems as a, as a denomination that, that ultimately claims its importance around missions? I mean, I'm Southern Baptist for a reason. I love Southern Baptist life. I love our churches. We hold the gospel so near and dear to us. We believe that this word that we preach is true. But will we apply it to our lives in these areas? Where we, where, will we allow the grace of God to bring change? And it's my hope that we will. Let me close with this illustration. Yesterday I was uh, um, going to my son's soccer game. It was at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And my soccer, or my soccer ability, and you know, as I've gotten older, I had two ACL surgeries. I played a lot, can't play anymore. But my sons, they love it. They love it, and one of them is just not very good. You know, and a son kind of, you know, is supposed to be a reflection of his father in many ways, and at least there's these ideals that we have in our mind when we were younger that we used to be a certain type of athlete, and we think that we were really good. And I look at my middle son, and Braden is, he's one of those kids that he would rather be the guy that's kind of, you know, checking out the birds in the air you know, as like a game has taken place and he gets sidetracked by like a butterfly and like he's like going to play with that for a little while. And, um, but he loves being out there with his friends. He loves it. And there's this one kid on, on our team that is flat out amazing. He's the coach's son. You know that kid. And he is extremely good. And what I like about this kid, his name is Eric, is that there's a humility to him. He's an extremely good player. Um, he can, you know, at, at seven years old, he can score with his left foot and his right foot. He's a great dribbler. He's the first one back on defense. He knows the position where he needs to be in. He's an encourager on the team. But if he wanted to, he could score every single time down. 
but he's chosen not to do that. In fact, the greatest thing about Eric is how he treats and, and starts to identify the gifts that other people have on the team. He is so much more willing to give an assist or to run back on defense or to pass the ball to the kid like my son that is looking at a bird in order to give him an opportunity to be a part of the team. And in many ways, I feel like that that's what our churches look like. They're gifted in so many areas. We cooperate in a, in a large denomination. And within the context of that large denomination, you have large churches and you have small churches. You've got churches that are in the middle. You've got churches that have, uh, have membership that are starting to get older. And then you've got churches that are made up of a bunch of 20-year-olds. And their pastor is like 22. And you're thinking, man, that's so weird. How does he know anything? We need each other. The body of Christ and the saints that are depicted throughout Scripture, I mean, they needed one another. Don't we need each other on some form or fashion as well? How are we going to serve together? How are we going to allow the grace of God to influence our partnership? And so I'll end with this question, and then I'll pray. Do we really understand the grace of God? Let's pray.